Hit it on na 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 Hey got it one more time Shalom, shalom, holy friends, it's great to see you. That that nigun, that little chant comes from um the opening line before the Amida which is a basically a way of saying like, I'm about to use my words in the world in a really powerful way. And I want to bring my full integrity to my words, my full integrity to my words before I start to pray. And, and I love that. You know, I was on a call yesterday with a, a woman who we were talking about a difficult work relationship that we shared um, with someone else. And he started the call by saying, listen, we're in the month of Elul leading up to Rosh Hashanah. We have to talk about a messy situation, but I want us to do everything we can to reduce our Lashon Hara, like speaking badly of others. So like, let's get the job done. We need to get done, but let's also be mindful of like how we're using our words. And I, I, I was really inspired by her and how she framed our work meeting in such a way. So, um, so friends, in that spirit, we're talking today about our lips for pursuing truth and how that relates to our pursuits of kindness. And let's start with a poll. How do you relate to truth? Option one, truth is so noble and one of the highest religious and moral pursuits. Option two, truth is important, but often in tension with many other important values. Option three, truth is dead. All we have are feelings. (laughs) Hard to choose among those, huh? Okay. Give you another moment. Okay. Nobody says truth is dead. Maybe you say God is dead, but to unpack Nietzsche would take a long time. Um, uh, But nobody thinks truth is dead and all we have are feelings. But 29% of us think truth is so noble, one of the highest religious and moral pursuits. And 71%, okay, it's important, but it's often in tension with many other important values. So friends, as always, we're going to learn through some sources and then um, uh, and then um, trampoline off of those. Ah, yes, but who defines truth? Very good. Um, trampoline off of those into, um, or springboard into a conversation. Well, we should start, start with John Keats. John Keats wrote, beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know to on earth and all you need to know. Ah, so the realm of epistemology as it intersects with um, the aesthetics, how do beauty and truth intersect? We think of them as different enterprises, but Keats wants us to think of truth in the realm of beauty. 
there are few values that feel as obviously Jewish as pursuing truth. What is religion about if it's not about the quest for truth? In addition to being an epistemological pursuit as we strive to comprehend the cosmos, it is a moral pursuit as we strive to live with integrity. While truth would not be an absolute commitment, of course, as Immanuel Kant would have it, nonetheless, the commitment to truth is a very high priority in Jewish thought. The Torah teaches us, Midavar Sheker Tirchak, distance yourself from falsehood. That, um, I mean, having kids in grade school, the stories they tell me when they're falling asleep in bed, like, look like this image in this picture. It's just like they're, you're, they're about to fall asleep and they're like, they've been holding this tension in their body all day around like a moment like this, where someone said something that felt like bad about them. And kids just don't know how to live with that. I mean, a lot of adults don't know how to live with that too, but kids especially don't know how to live with that moment where you feel like that girl does it right there. Um, anyways, it says over there in Exodus, distance yourself from falsehood. It is not only that we should speak truth and not lie, the verse says, but we should actually distance ourselves from falsehood, right? Um, the, the Sefer Achinuch, focusing on the phrase distance yourself, emphasizes this point. Here's what the Sefer Achinuch wants to say. The root of this mitzvah is well known. Falsehood is abominable and corrupt in the eyes of all. There's nothing more abhorrent than it. Desolation and curse is found in the home of those who love falsehood, and blessing is only found and only will take effect upon those who emulate God in their actions. To be truthful, just as God is a God of truth, to have compassion, as it is known that God is compassionate, to do acts of loving kindness, just as God abounds in loving kindness. For this reason, the Torah cautions us to distance ourselves exceedingly from falsehood, as it is written, distance yourself from falsehood. In stating this mitzvah, the Torah uses the word distance, which it does not do regarding any other mitzvah. It just says, don't do this. It doesn't say distance yourself to indicate the disgusting nature of falsehood, right? Maybe you've been in a relationship where someone lied to you, cheated on you in a way that was irreparable, right? This relationship could never be healed given the nature of that deception, right? And that is true in many relationships, that we destroy societal trust. We destroy relationships or homes through... Uh, not distancing ourselves from falsehood. Even further, we may feel that as long as I'm not the speaker of lies, we can associate with others who are. The Sefer Chinook teaches here, an aspect of distancing is not to incline one's ear at all to hear anything that one believes to be falsehood, even if the listeners do not know for certain that this particular matter is a lie. Additionally, it's not only that we don't want to give those who lie credibility, but also that we may inadvertently be influenced by them. Indeed, we are warned that avera goreret avera, one wrong leads to another. The rabbis taught, truth stands, falsehood does not stand. In the end, falsehood will be exposed. It cannot endure. Furthermore, we are told, Rabbi Shimon Shimon ben Gamliel taught, the world is sustained by three things, justice, truth, and peace. Justice, truth, and peace. Just as a reminder, if you kick out one leg, 
of a three-legged table, the whole table collapses. So it may feel like each of these three has one-third of the value, 30-30% of the value. But actually, they have 100% of the value because if you kick out any one of them from the table, the table collapses. A world without justice can't sustain. A world without truth, a world without peace. And so these three need each other. Someone who, in theory, advocates for justice and peace, but does it through lies, right? It can't succeed. Someone who speaks the truth and and fights for justice, but actually doesn't care about the, the peace dimension also. The rabbis say these three actually need each other. Rabbeinu Yonah teaches that our commitment to truth is not only religiously meaningful, but morally imperative and necessary for the health of the soul. Misleading people, he writes, and lying is in a sense more serious than theft. This is because speaking falsehood is an act of self-destruction, for truthfulness is one of the foundations of the health of the soul. Therefore, we are obligated to stay within the parameters of truth, right? That's interesting. It's not only the consequential dimension, but kind of the health of our own souls in how we think about how we articulate our words. We may think that when we're unsure if we should speak up in a given situation, that we should just remain silent. But the rabbis teach that silence may also be a form of lying. It says over here, from where do we know that if a student is sitting before their teacher, who is a judge, and the student sees a supporting argument for the poor litigant, or an argument against the rich litigant, that their teacher has missed, that they may not sit quietly. The Torah states, distance yourself from falsehood. Friends, this is Gavalik. You might have thought, what do I know? I'm a little picture. I'm like an 18-year-old student, my wise 70-year-old teacher, right? My great rabbi, my great professor, my great mentor, right? They really understand what I don't. Another rabbi says, uh-uh, right? Yes, they probably do know a lot more than you. But from your vantage point, you see truth in where you're sitting, and they might be missing it. You can't, based on their expertise, sit back and not speak up. If you think the rich litigant is being wronged or the poor litigant is being wronged, and you see something that you think the judge or the teacher can't see, you got to weigh in. So, of course, so this is very different than an authoritarian approach to religion or authoritarian approach to, <coughs> to truth, right? that even someone seems more like more of an expert, you got to speak up. Let's say the dental hygienist sees the dentist charging for a cavity, right? Um, and she's like, I don't think that's a cavity, but he, she's the dentist. She knows, what, what do I know? I'm just a hygienist, so I'm not going to speak up. But actually, is the person overcharging? You know, what if the, the rookie cop sees the senior cop, right, who seems to be operating by bias or the like? Do I speak up, right? So it's interesting. Of course, there are some very rare cases where other values outweigh the value of perfect truth, right? It's not all about the perfect truth. Consider how Rabbeinu Yonah teaches this when he defines nine categories of falsehood. Here's what he says. The fourth category, it'd be worth looking at all of them, but it would be, take us too far afield. The fourth category is one who intentionally lies in relating a story that they heard and changes the facts around just a little bit. Yet they have no benefit from these lies and it doesn't damage anyone else. This category of falsehood was made permissible by the rabbis in order to 
first, fulfill a mitzvah, and second, also for the pursuit of good and peace, right? So over there, they say, I'm close to positive. I won't damage anyone by telling the story a little bit differently. And, um, and um, the essence of what I'm telling is the same, right? There's only a slight tweak here because there's a greater good and peace that is involved here. The Talmud teaches how preserving a marriage also may matter more than perfect truth. This is an interesting uh, midrash. Avraham and Sarah were informed by three guests that they would miraculously have children. Remember that case? Even though they were very old, right? They're like super old, like impossible to have kids. Sarah expressed disbelief at the news, claiming that both she and her husband were incapable of producing children. When God related the incident of Sarah's disbelief to Avraham, God omitted the fact that Sarah had implied that her husband was old and incapable of having children, right? Because, you know, how many men want to be viewed as impotent, right? Or how many men or women want to be viewed as um, infertile? And, you know, and so Sarah's disbelief of having the kids was not only that she was too old, but that he was too old. But when God reported to her, God, to him, God left out the part of her concern about him, right? I'm concerned for his uh, sensitivity there. So the school of Rabbi Yishmael taught in a Brita on this, great is peace for even the Holy One be blessed, alters the words of truth for the sake of peace. Originally, it is written, Sarah said, after I have withered and become old, shall I again have delicate skin and give birth? And my husband is old. But in the end, when God quotes Sarah's words to Avraham, it is written, and I, Sarah, am old, right? So the rabbis say, ah, like, you think you never lie, but wait a minute, even God lies, right, for, for a good, right? Now, um, uh, this is, of course, a very high level not to be used flippantly. In addition to performing a mitzvah and preserving a marriage, the rabbis talk about altering truth for the sake of dignity of the other, right? So now we have three categories, right? right absolute commitment to truth, almost absolute commitment to truth. But then we say, okay, wait a minute, absolute? What about to perform a, a mitzvah? What about to preserve an important relationship? What about for the dignity of another? We've mentioned this case before, but let's, let's read it on the inside. Over here from the Talmud of Ketubot, the rabbis taught in a Abraita, how do we dance before the bride? Beit Shammai says, we praise and describe the bride as she is. Oh, Beit Shammai loves truth. Beit Hillel says, in all cases, we give praise and say that the bride is beautiful and kind. Beit Shammai said to Beit Hillel, now, if she was lame or blind, which is already kind of problematic, but if she were lame or blind, do we say about her that she is beautiful and charming bride? But the Torah has said, distance yourself from falsehood. Beit Hillel said to Beit Shammai, according to your view, if someone made a bad purchase in the market and he asked your opinion on the purchase and he had no way of returning the item, should one praise it in the purchaser's eyes or denigrate it? Of course you would say that one should praise it in his eyes. So that's interesting, that business model also. We should therefore praise even a homely bride. <laughs> so. Um, so there we see Shammai's commitment to truth, and we see Hillel's commitment to um, a greater good in, in some cases where um, there's unlikely to be damage, only good caused.
in such a case. There are other situations that may warrant exemption in refraining from in, in refraining from lying, such as acting humbly or protecting oneself from extortion. But Jewish tradition requires one to be on a very high level to engage in such behavior. One has to have total clarity that one's altering of truth is not for their own benefit, is not going to cause harm to others. Yes, beautiful baby, yes. Um, and will not influence another to lie or to believe that lying is acceptable. Okay, so you heard those three levels according to this one school of thought that if you're going to take one of these exceptions where there can be a distortion of truth, there have to be three self-assessments. One, does my altering of truth, um, it, will it benefit me in any way? Because it can't benefit me. Number two, is it going to cause harm to another? Um, and, and number three, will this influence another to lie also, or will it kind of be unknown in some sense? On the other hand, today, truth is under attack. It's under attack from the far right who claim all is fake news and who discredit election integrity and medical expertise. In some ways, it's under attack from aspects of the far left who throw out empirical data to fit their ideology. Doesn't matter what facts are new, right? I've got an ideology that, that outweighs any facts. It's under attack from postmodernists in some cases who claim that all truth is relative, every dimension of it and that there's actually no truth that's actually worth fighting for. It's under attack from fundamentalists who claim that all truth is simple and accessible and in their control. It's under attack by those who think the goal of life is, is only happiness at all costs and do not include a rigorous pursuit of truth as a goal of, of life, only the pursuit of happiness at the expense of truth. Aside from being untruthful in our words and refraining from lying, there's a different type of truth which we should pursue. Rav Cook teaches how indeed there are multiple conflicting truths we can live with and how only in a time to come will all these truths come to fit together in a sensible and meaningful way, right? Now we're moving beyond the binary of false and true, of speaking truth for speaking a lie, and now thinking about the realm of multiple truths and how multiple truths interact with each other. Here is Rav Cook in Olat Re'a. The abundance of peace means that all sides and opinions will become evident, and it will become clear how there is room for all of them, each according to its own standing, place, and substance. Here's the essence of VBM's pluralism. On the contrary, even matters that appear superfluous or contradictory will become evident when the truth of wisdom in all its facets is revealed. For only through an assemblage of all the parts and all the particulars, all the dissimilar ideas and all the diverse disciplines, only through them will the light of truth and justice shine, as well as knowledge of God, love and awe of God and the true light of Torah. So friends, just a reminder here, the relativist says, ah, there's a weakness to every truth claim. Every truth claim is flawed. So there is no um, real truth to cling to, the relativist says. The pluralist says there is light and truth in every claim to some degree, in every origin of a claim at least. And so we must gather the sparks of all those various claims. And Rav Cook says ultimately in the, in the days to come, we will see that 
conservatives and liberals at their core have something to offer that that secularists and fundamentalists have something to offer that reform and conservative and orthodox Jews that Christians Muslims Buddhists and Jews and all different faiths have something to offer that actually we live in a world of conflict today that where our camp is right and every other camp is stupid or evil but we will ultimately come to see that all these conflicting truths that we live in actually have elements elements of light and goodness hidden within each of them. We cannot let our different ideological and theological truths divide us, Rav Cook is ultimately pushing us towards. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs wrote in The Dignity of Difference, nothing has proved harder in the history of civilization than to see God or good or human dignity in those whose language is not mine, whose skin is a different color, whose faith is not my faith, and whose truth is not my truth. Biblical monotheism is not the idea that there is one God and therefore one truth, one faith, one way of life. On the contrary, it is the idea that unity creates diversity. Right, beautiful. You might have said one God, one truth. It says, no, actually the unity that can emerge under such biblical monotheism actually is the foundation for embracing a diversity. Some may approach me and say, Rabbi, prove to me that God exists. It's great when you're sitting on an airplane and someone says that. You like relaxed in your chair, you know, you open your peanuts. I don't know why they still serve peanuts on airplanes. Like every school in the world, you can't bring peanuts anymore. You get on a plane, they start throwing peanuts around, right? So anyways, you're on the plane, you relax in your chair, you, you know, you open your laptop to start some work, you get some peanuts, and the guy next to you says, Rabbi, prove to me that God exists. And you say, oh, this is going to be a long flight. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, so, but friends, this is a flawed question. We don't use a cheap mathematical or scientific proof to demonstrate the deepest truths of the universe. In fact, we cannot prove in the absolute sense that God exists, of course. I'd be very skeptical of books of proofs of, of the of divine, nor should we want to. God, um, If God is to be embraced at all, God is to be in, experienced, not proven. So too, I hear Rabbi, prove to me that Judaism is true. But here too, this is a flawed question. Judaism is not proven through a quick axiom, but rather through its story. Rabbi Sachs adds, Judaism is a faith, but it is the faith of a particular people. It is more than a set of truths and commands. It is a people to whom whose truths, those truths and commands are addressed to, and in whose lives they are embodied. The future of the covenant depends on the future of the people of the covenant. Theology in Judaism is dependent on demography, right? We are not a people of truth. We are a people of story. And so, while we are so committed to pursuing truth, we also know how much bloodshed there has been in the name of truth. How many people have killed each other in the name of fighting for the noble truth they feel they must kill for? Once again, Sachs is quite eloquent. He here reminds us of how we must change this course. And here we're going to conclude after this. Sachs wrote, for life to be livable, 
Truth on earth cannot be what it is in heaven. Truth in heaven may be platonic, eternal, harmonious, radiant, but man cannot aspire to such truth. And if he does, he will create conflict, not peace. Men kill because they believe they possess the truth, while their opponents are in error. In that case, says God, throwing truth to the ground, let human beings live by a different standard of truth, one that is human and thus conscious of its limitations. Truth on the ground is multiple, partial. Fragments of it lie everywhere. Each person, culture, and language has part of it. None has all of it. Truth on earth is not, nor can it aspire to be, the whole truth. It is limited, not comprehensive, particular, not universal. When two propositions conflict, it is not necessarily because one is true and the other false. It may be and often is that each represents a different perspective on reality, an alternative way of structuring order, no more and no less commensurable than a Shakespeare sonnet, a Michelangelo painting, or a Schubert sonata. In heaven there is truth, on earth there are truths. Therefore, each culture has something to contribute. Friends, may we be rigorous pursuers of peace, dignity, and humility, but may we do everything possible to uphold the deepest commitment to truth alongside those other virtues. Living with truth is a kindness, enabling us to give others a sense of stability. It allows us to build trust, to deepen relationships, and to create spaces where we can all be more vulnerable in bringing our authentic, truthful selves wherever we go. Okay, my dear friends, I would love to hear from you. I've not been keeping up with the chat. So um, if you wrote something there you also want to articulate, that would be wonderful. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, so I have two comments. It depends. Do you want me to, th to think that I am completely 100% insane or do you want something that's gonna, not going to make me seem as insane? Let's, let's start with the one that makes us think you're not insane, although I reject your premise. Okay. Um, and then we'll go to the one that, you know, and we'll build up to the more excitement, exciting one. Okay. The first, <laughs> um, the not less insane one was about false prophets. Okay. They're everywhere, all over the place. False prophets are, as a matter of fact, um, I was in a bad situation with a false prophet. I didn't even realize it. Now to show you how insane I am, you're going to think I'm completely insane. All right. Um, when it comes to interdisciplinary approaches, people are pretty narrow-minded about it. Um, now, one thing that shocks people when I tell them uh, what I was supposed to write in my dissertation was I was supposed to cite differential equations and quantum theory for a history dissertation. Now, why do people think this is insane? Because there was no science in. I was just using the theories in order to like prove my point. Now, why did I need um, quantum theory? Well, it's kind of sort of like Hegel where you have a thesis and an antithesis. And basically though, you just keep at it until they you know, destroy each other. It's like antimatter and matter. They're gonna destroy each other at some point. And then you end up with a lot of energy to make something new. And so that's why societies keep repeating a lot of the same, You know, when they have a revolution, my argument was when they have a revolution, it's because they always put the same thing up because they did not find the true antithesis, the true anti. Now, why was differential equations there? Counters 
which are the individual multiple truths that you have. And eventually though, like um, the way that it's based on the uniqueness theorem, any, any differential equations people in here can like just correct me, you know, if they want to, okay? And so the thing is, is that all of those different, um, all of those different solutions, all those different truths to the problem though, uh, they're based on particular circumstances. And so because they're based on particular circumstances, you're going to end up in the same place. Hence, when you started talking about multiple truths and everything, I was like, ooh, maybe this would be more interesting to go into because it's like multiple truths. I mean, it, it, for me, it depends. Now, I, they eventually made me cut those sections of my dissertation out, which I'm still pretty PO'd about, though. But thinking about that today, though, you know, when we're talking about pursuing truth, though, it's a lot more complex. That's my point. It's a lot more complex. Truth, I think of as something with a capital T where it's an asymptote. We can get closer and closer, but we're never gonna get there. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if everybody thinks I'm insane right now though, but why I would write that in a dissertation about 18th century Louisiana, but here you go. Awesome, Aglaia, thank you. A lot to unpack there, which I won't, I won't even take a stab at given your expertise on those subjects. A lot to unpack there. And I think you're, um, you know, just picking up on your last point, there's some dimensions of multiple truths that may sound very attractive to us. Yeah. And there might be other aspects that feel very offensive to us, but we would never go there. Imagine a theological claim where you appreciate multiple truths, right? right. Um, different expressions of, of, of the divine or the like. Imagine a political uh, uh, argument that is, is very fiery for you where you would never want to embrace the, 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 the multiple truths involved in, 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 in the different sides. Let's say it had to do, you know, I won't even give examples. You, you can fill in the blank pretty easily. A case where you couldn't imagine, you know, justifying, you know, the, the, the case on the other side. And so, but I, I, I love that point also of how the clashes continue. And oftentimes it's the wrong antithesis that's actually clashing, clashing against. Um, we haven't even put the right values kind of next to each other. We haven't even allowed these conflicts to breathe um, in order to, to lead us to progress. So, wow, lots more to say there. Thank you. Eileen and then Sarah. Thinking about false prophets, that's all. Sorry. Thank you. Yes, Eileen and then Sarah. Thank you. Hi. Um, my idea is what we are trying to arrive at is a definition of an abstract and that by definition leads us in a circular firing squad because everybody's definition of truth, justice, and the righteous way is different. Right. So my concept will be different than yours. Hopefully, there's some approximation which gets us close together. Great. Second thing, in regard to Hegel's thesis and antithesis, generally we arrive at a synthesis. We take these two opposite elements and we try to reach some kind of mutual agreement from which we can go forward. Great, great. Okay, great. That's great. So I want to say two things there. I love that. Thanks. Thank you so much. The first is um, some of us may view ourselves in the camp 
of just being um, warriors for truth or justice or whatever we're warriors for. And we're not interested in healing society. And some of us may view ourselves as, as being in the healing society camp as well, or, or exclusively. And if you're in the latter and you haven't yet read the famous book by Jonathan Haidt, I want to uh, hate, hate or height. I want to recommend it. Um, I'll even put it in the chat here in a moment. And essentially he looks at how the most polarizing issues of our society, there's actually very noble virtues underlying both sides that um, are based on our personalities. They're not, we, we like to think it's about us. It's our ideology. It's about our conclusion of truth, but how we were basically hardwired to believe what we believe. And once we actually see how we're hardwired right, to be liberals or conservatives, to hold these nobles as the highest and those nobles as second, those virtues as secondary, right, then we'll actually come to figure out that we have to live together and talk together. And so, yeah, on that first point, I think that's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's really helpful to think through that a little bit um, and see how that emerges. Um, and then on your second point around mutual agreement around synthesis, um, there's a philosopher who's been talking about civic bargaining. He says, we put way too much weight on the idea of democracy. We think democracy, when we're defending democracy, that democracy means everything we want. Like democracy means like justice and peace and truth. No, no, democracy is, is like a very low bar. Democracy is like a basic process of ensuring that the people have some for, so, for, form of um, process. Structure. Structure to engage in, in governing themselves um, and where there is no boss. Essentially, there is no boss is, is, a, is, is a core premise of that, right? And, he's, and, 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 and he says, what we need to maintain democracy is civic bargaining. Civic bargaining around essentially three points. Around um, security, which means that we understand that there are foreign threats to our collective, that we have to unite in some way around uh, defending ourselves from foreign threats. Number two, around welfare, which is to say there's some form of taking care of each other that's needed in society. And number three, the idea that there is no boss, right? And as soon as we give up on any of those three, because we want to win politically what we want more than engage in a civic bargaining with those we disagree with, then democracy crumbles and we get a boss, we get a monarch, we get a tyrant, right? And so, Part of this idea of this mutual agreement is like, do we actually have the humility or the intellectual foresight to give up on some of the things we want because we think a collective is um, a collective civic bargaining is going to work better than just advocating, you know, um, um, uh, without budging at all for the things that we want. And that is essentially the breakdown we're seeing in America today, that um, it's not that people have clarity on what they want. They're giving up on a civic bargaining process in terms of what it's all of what we ultimately um, think we can achieve together. And when we choose our absolute moral priorities over the civic bargaining process, that's the signs of when a democracy will ultimately crumble um, because we will cut all kinds of corners and destroy all kinds of checks and balances in the name of what we consider to be good and just over um, this this contract that we've we've put together as a society. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Good afternoon from here. So um, several things. One, I, I really enjoyed that last piece. And I love the notion of that, again, being that three-legged stool. Um, and 
it sounds like it's centered around our needs uh, individually, but collectively, the needs for the community. But I want to go back to what you were inviting us to do, which was to pursue truth. And my sense was you're asking me truly to pursue that what Sachs is calling the heavenly truth and not my human truth because my human truth is so individualized, so fragmented really. And that maybe what you're really inviting me to do is to pursue my authenticity and to, especially during this time of Elul, to crack apart my notions of what truth is and to collectively uh, bring myself back together, go back into my heart to recognize those greater human needs that live within us and are a gift from the heavens. And I'm complete. Sarah, thank you for that. Yeah, that was that was so beautifully stated. Um, yeah, and I hope we can all take that in. And Sarah reminds us that in the month of Elul now, part of our Teshuvah process, reflection process is returning to authenticity, which is so many layers deep of kind of who we are, what our purpose is, what we're here to do, um, what we stand for and believe, and um, and and ultimately to uh, to go further and deeper into that and see that that is ourself, but it's also greater than ourself. It's it's a, a very, very deep dive in discovery. Beautiful. Yeah, hi, Eddie. Yeah, I'm sitting with the concept of multiple truths. And I, I'm wondering if, if understanding that there is multiple truths truly leads us into a better society. Um, what I'm what I'm feeling in right now is in, in my own personal life of immigration, um, I'm looking at the, the standard, uh, the idea that there is multiple truths in the fact of um, as a migrant, I, I only see my truth sometimes, but as, as a person who may be on the opposition, I never really tend to see that side. Um, but now a lot of folks in the, in the uh, specifically in the Mexican community are kind of seeing the other side's points because there has been an ongoing movement of American cities, American citizens moving into Mexico. And they're saying like, don't come, you know, they're taking over our resources. They're, um, they're taking jobs from us. And it's like a full 180 of, of American citizens looking at the other multiple truths. But I do think that there is a beauty of understanding that there is gray area where I think as a, as a especially in America, as a society in, a, in the United States, we, we try to find a singularity in the truth where sometimes that's not possible. But I think when we grow into the, the ability of understanding that there is a, a, a pluralistic vision in those truths, that then we move into a, a more empathetic understanding society. Beautiful. I, I love what Eddie said. And for some, this may seem scary because um, it may feel like we are abandoning what we care about. Um, but I think what Eddie's articulating um, is not an abandonment at all. It's just giving a little bit more breathing room 
a little bit more dignity and a little more respect, a little more space um, for alternatives to exist alongside, which is to say, like, I don't abandon the, the truth I think is more right ultimately here and my advocacy of it, so to speak, or my prayer within it. But I can hold that alongside each other, right? It's like for some, for some, um, uh, imagine a kid who it's the first time coming out of their own religious community. And now they're like in a comparative religion course, right? For some, they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to abandon religion. These things are all false, right? Or they're going to double down on their own and reject all the other ones. Right. Or they can still hold their own, but give a little bit more respect, a little more breathing space to the others. And I think that what Eddie's articulate, articulating there, I think, is a powerful expression of that. Um, so thank you. Hi, Eric. Hello, Rabbi. Uh, thank you so much. I, I've been finding um, some of the other participants been sharing their their analysis and their assessments of truth. I've been feeling the same sentiment, especially the multiple truths. But um, and I think this was a great textual look into the pursuit of truth, um, especially where there's exceptions. I'd like to get your thoughts and I welcome other participants as well. Uh, if you've seen that there's been Jewish thoughts or scholars or where there's good interpretation as to the prioritization of truth in oneself, as where do we, like, what is the truth in oneself that we pursue to find, um, could be a sense of completion, could be the sense of, it could be teshuva. I, I don't know, like, I'm not understood, like, what has been good Jewish thought to how to prioritize the pursuit of truth for oneself vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, and then there could be others, the pursuit of truth and the prioritizing truths for um, the family, the community, the temple, our society. I know that it, it can vary on the person. I just haven't seen a kind of a codified version of like how to under like how to understand that. And one thought I want to leave since we're coming close to the, the Chagim is uh, the idea of teshuva. I understand the pursuit of you know the pursuit of truth has been one way to has been associated with one way to go with teshuva, but I feel like it's somewhat. Um, incomplete based on the, the on how we do pursue teshuva. I feel like it's not enough. It could be a sense of, okay, if I pursue teshuva, I feel a sense of completion. I feel like, okay, I've, 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 I'm stepping away from the missing the marks, but I feel like that may not be enough because there could be still a sense of incompletion in oneself even after that. Anyone has thoughts on that? Awesome. Awesome. Love it. Love it. Yes. A few things here. So firstly, I want to remind us that in the garden of Eden, the first, what Christians call sin, um, eating of the fruit was the, the, the eating of the fruit from the Eitz Hadat, the, the tree of knowledge, right? Yes. It's Eitz Hadat Tovera, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, but think about that, that essentially the human embrace of truth the, the human enterprise to in towards in, into wisdom, into knowledge, essentially was what got us kicked out of the garden. And um, according to those Christian reads, it was a sin and we were punished. But um, Jewish reads very differently um, can be around the inevitable nature 
and the maturation, as we've discussed, the maturation of the human um, to kind of leave the garden. And many of us, I would suggest, still live in the garden, We're not willing to eat from the Eitzadat Tovara. Have we ourselves today chosen to eat fruit, to open our eyes, right? To, um, to be willing to leave the comforts of the garden, um, to ultimately live in a world where the masks come off and we see our, our nakedness. We need to be clothed now because now the birth of shame and the birth of moral consciousness. And that's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. And so Eric moves us towards the questions of Teshuvah. And I want to remind us that the greatest or, or the most uh, perhaps accurate interpretation of Teshuvah as being return, return to the self, return to the self. And as Sarah says over there, to our own kind of authenticity, which comes from author, like being the author of our lives in an existentialist self sense, that we are returning to our, our either our essence, if you will, or to our existence, if you will, and um, being a partner with the divine in that returning process to that inner goodness, that inner potentiality. And to Eric's specific point there around where does this idea of truth in self emerge? Well, it's a very modern idea, the notion of self-truth, right? My own subjective or relative truth um, in a way that pre-moderns cannot um, grasp at all. Um, truth is all objective and quantifiable or measurable um, in a sense. Actually, it's interesting in the Jewish tradition, the Ashkenazic world and halakha uses objective measures to assess things. The Sephardic world uses subjective measures. Let me give one example, um, which is that um, one piece of treif falls into a 60 pieces of kosher pot. And according to the Ashkenazi world, you have to measure like how much of that piece of pork fell into that, that matzo ball soup. And if it's, if it's, actually 61 pieces of kosher matzo ball soup and one piece of pork, that's still kosher soup, according to the rabbis, right? It was it now, um, assuming it's not discernible, it's like actually, um, you know, it's, 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 um, it's completely mixed um, that you treat as kosher soup because it is batel, is nullified because quant quantify on a quantifiable measure. According to the Sephardic rabbis, you, the, you have to get a Gentile cook to taste it. And if the cook can taste it, taste the pork, then it's not kosher soup. And if the cook can't taste the pork, then it is kosher soup. And so it's not about the quantities of pork versus matzo ball. It is about the subjectivity of this Gentile who's tasting the soup, right? And so how do we assess whether this is, you know, matzo ball soup I can serve or not? And so this notion of assessing of truth. Now, the one exception there is in the Hasidic world. In Hasidut, there was a big um, emphasis placed. Now they are at the birth of modernity in, in a sense, um, a big emphasis on per, your, what is your personal Torah? What is your personal truth? Like, how do you, what's your personal prayer to God? Not just what does the, does the Sidur say? What's your spontaneous personal prayer, right? What is your personal teshuva, your personal authenticity? That was part of the appeal of the emergence of the Hasidic movement is that it moved away from the elitist Talmudic Academy towards the um, 
the subjective spiritual experience of the individual. And that was pretty radical. What exists pre-modernity, we already looked at, was from the legal tradition, the sense that experts miss things and we need to speak up against experts as we as we looked at earlier. And so my personal assessment of truth is also credible and valid and important because something may have been overlooked. Um, I do wonder today with kids if we um, how we balance our message of personal truth with a sense of socially acceptable truth. Um, and, um, you know, the sense that all truth is constructed in society and the sense that we still do need to operate in some sense um, based on social convention and some assumption of norms around truth. Um, and how do we balance that that um, those two commitments towards a kind of absolutism and a relativism and something in between, which we would call an evaluativism, right? That we're going to take the relativity of truth, but still evaluate the claims and not just throw our hands up. Hi, Cheryl Hammerman. Hi. Um, I wanted to talk about, Eileen said about synthesis, and I, I, I totally agree that that's what we need, but I feel like absolute truth prevails now. And in certain, you know, I, I think of some of the big tent revivals and things in, in some of those faiths that teach absolute truth that, um, that that's, there, there's one way of doing things. And that's why we're, it seemed to be in much more trouble now th than we used to be. Um, and also, I wanted to say something about the um, Unatana Tokev. Um, so, uh, that Eric, Eric mentioned something about, um, teshuva, uh, it never says in the text of the prayer about who will die from this or no one, no one's going to die from lying. So, um, but it says that whatever you do, if you return or repent, then that will avert the severe decree of you dying either in, in, you know, it, I, I hate to say in shame. That's not what I mean. But, uh, but I think that that you know, at this time, at this time, I'm I'm really glad Eric brought that up because I think that that is one of the most significant parts of the um, high holiday, uh, high holiday liturgy. So I love that you brought that up. Thank you so much for that. Um, and Cheryl, what was your po what was um, what was your point around this around this issue of the, how the repenting kind of the, well the, the ab absolute well, you mean oh the the repentance that, yeah. that 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 it never says I was looking for that because when we're talking about truth versus lying and maybe mm. we can lie a little and maybe we can and I was just I just looked at the text to see if there was any mention of anything like that but there's nothing about truth or untruth because as you just mm. pointed out. We all have our own personal truth, which may or may not be uh, discussed or appreciated or significant to others. And then one more thing, and that is that when Susanna Heschel was here for um, VBM some years ago, and uh, the question, some one of one of the attendees put a question to her about the political situation. I think she was there, like prior to 2015 or 2016, you know, the political pressure about how people, I mean, friendships have been, as we've discussed before, friendships have been uh, dissolved because of the, the political climate, et cetera. And she, she actually said, which, you know, I don't, I don't agree with, but I thought it was significant. She said it. And my one friend who asked the question took it to heart. 
she said when, when she when when the person said this person thinks this this and this is the truth about this candidate and what am I supposed to do about it because I believe that this this and this is the truth about this candidate and Susanna Heschel said get new friends so well, and, uh, and, and what, what 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 do you think of her answer well, I said I don't agree with it because there's certain. Um, yeah, right. I mean, I just for me personally, right. I, I I mean, I yeah. I guess I can come to that synthesis that Eileen discussed, and that is to choose not to discuss certain things or choose that there's more based on a particular relationship than might be. I mean, there are couples who are, uh, you know, uh, in opposition to each other, um, you know, politically. But, uh, you know, not to even mention friendships, there's families. I mean, yeah. you and oh, I yeah. both come from, you and I both come from families where there's opposing opinions on yeah. what, right. you know, on the, these kind of things. So that's why I disagreed yeah. with her, but I thought- it Thank was you, thank you. Comment. Yeah, you know, so I wanna remind us that, um, so Aristotle has four categories of friends. And um, and for him, the highest level is one that does resonate for a, a, a Talmudic notion of friendship also, which is kind of like a, um, Partner in crime is the wrong phrase, but kind of like a shared purpose, right? We we essentially are a values-driven partners in trying to achieve something good in the world. Like we're studying Torah together or we are advocating for something together, right? That's very different than the friend you go to a movie with or play pickleball with or the friend that you, um, you know, grew up with and know everything about them for the last, you know, 60 years. And so... There's very different kinds of friends and the notion, and I understand what, what Professor Heschel wanted, was saying over there. And I also think that we'd have a pretty broken world and community and families if we just abandoned every friend who, you know, when things get politically heated, we, we dump them. And now I understand, um, I understand that. And, and I myself, you know, have chosen to get closer to people or, or less so based upon their understandings of who's kind of in the fight with them for, for good and who's not. Um, that said, like, that would be a very, um, in my, if, if that was our approach to all relationships, we'd have a lot of problems, um, a lot. And we do have a lot of problems, but I, so that's the first thing I want to say is, um, and yeah, like a relationship with a daughter and a father, a son and a father, or um, a husband and a wife or, or husband, husband, wife, wife, or whoever, you know, um, you know, is, and a friend is goes so much more deep, goes so much deeper at times than, than that. Um, and so I think that's really important that you brought that up. So thank you. Um, there's a truth. Like if I'm playing basketball with someone, there's a truth of our connection that goes beyond who we voted for politically. Like if I grew, went to preschool with someone and we're still friends, there's like a truth in our relationship that transcends like the ballot, you know? Um, and then there's friends that I, 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 we, I don't play sports with them. I don't know anything about their childhood but we're there to fight for immigrant rights together. And that's really deep also, right? And um, and so there's different kinds of relationships. Now, so I wanna say one other thing before we go to Lauren and then Sarah, um, which is that um, as we know in Elul, another important thing that we're trying to do in some years we might be successful and some years not, is offer forgiveness um, and ask for forgiveness. And I wanna remind us here that there's very few cases that, we're totally clear that we were wrong on. I mean, those feel pretty easy to ask forgiveness on. Like, oh my goodness, like I'm so, I'm embarrassed to do it, but I know I'm wrong 100%. Like, like uh, ask for forgiveness. Like more typically, we don't think we did anything wrong. We see the conflict that happened 
we're pretty sure it was all the other person, right? And so there is a great place to bring in this multiple truth and the personal truth dimension, like, okay, like, even if I can't get to the place where I see the truth, this other person feels I've wronged them. Like, can I at least in a hypothetical model, like embrace that they really believe the truth that they're saying, right? Even if I can't get there, right? Can I, and I have to, I then have to ask forgiveness, not in a condescending way. Like, I think you're totally wrong and you're a schmuck, but like, I still have to say, you know, forgive me, you know, excuse my language, excuse my language, you know, but, you know, but essentially like, it can't sound so condescending, but I have to approach them in a way that says, you know, like, um, I understand you really feel hurt and re I really do feel bad about that, you know, and I, I want to ask your forgiveness because you're hurt, you're hurt. And I, I have to bracket the part where I say, like, I think you're totally wrong. You know, you're, you're ludicrous, you know. Anyways, hi, Lauren. Hi. Uh, so thinking on, on and something that's a little more black and white, which is having been a clinical pharmacist working in, in medicine therapeutics, some things are absolutely true, true. Right, they 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 are true. They were true. They saved truth. Some things are true until you get further knowledge. So, like truth is also variable. I mean, it probably won't mean much to you, but when I think of like, you know, early in my career, you never gave a beta blocker to somebody with congestive heart failure. The thing, the, the idea was you would throw them further in failure. And now, a very low dose is actually gold standard. So truth changes even though there's some things that are still endemically truth so i just want to throw that out there i'm i'm sure it it you know would also be for historical truth maybe we don't have all the evidence things like that it's true up until we know otherwise beautiful yeah thank you so much that's so powerful to think about not only how incomplete truth is based on what we don't know yet. Think about science. I mean, science is the most obvious case. Like we know nothing, even though we know a whole lot more than we ever knew, right? Um, and, um, and it's also true that what was once true so deeply has also evolved. Think about memory, right? Like we do not remember what we remember, right? Memory is constantly reconstructed. And so like the truth changes as it's understood um, in so many ways. Yes, yeah, Sarah, you get our closing, uh, our closing thought here. Well, you, you, uh, there's so many things that have been going around that make so much sense, but uh, reflecting on what both of you have just said, the more we tell a story, the more it becomes truth. Mm -hmm. And there, the absolute truth is not something that we necessarily will ever know. Um, in response to what Eddie was saying, I think often fear gets in the way of our seeing someone else's truth that uh, it also reflects on what you've just said because our being able to be empathic to other human beings and remember they have humanity that we are supposed to welcome the stranger, even when their truth is strange to us, is an important commandment. And lastly, I'm wondering, was the Jonathan Haidt book you were talking about, The Righteous Mind? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for that. And, and I love that also around 
the welcoming the stranger that we don't welcome them because their truth is ours. That's what makes it so difficult because their truth, we might even be afraid of, right? They believe something very differently than us and they're gonna destroy our society with their truth as some would say, right? We're afraid of what their truth can do here. Um, and yet, um, whether we have a little fear or a lot of fear about the truths that they hold um, in various ways, like nonetheless, we welcome them. And maybe part of that is not only moral, but is also connected to breaking down our own idolatry of truth, right? That we have come to worship our truth as the ultimate ends in a way that has become an idol. And, um, and to be sure, Judaism can become an idolatry when Judaism becomes the only form of truth or our version of Judaism becomes the only form of truth. And so we constantly have to become atheists to become believers. We have to become smashers to become builders. We have to break down these absolute truths we've built up in order to ultimately come to have, have respect once again and actually search for truth. And this is the enterprise of kindness because we can only build a world of kindness if we can see each other beyond for our personal truths and beyond our personal truths for our ultimate dignity and worth. Have a beautiful day, everyone. Thank you so much for all your contributions.